What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Today's interview is with Nadia Ekbal. She's the head of writer experience at Substack and the author of Working in Public, a book where she researched and dove into the world of open source communities and identified some really interesting trends in how people contribute to those communities and some misconceptions where people think that these communities are just lots and lots of people building software together, when in reality, it's often one or very few people doing the bulk of the work. And we talk all about how she expands that into applying to any community, any internet community, and all the different kinds of communities that exist today. It's a really fascinating conversation. Nadia is very well researched and has done more thinking on this subject than anyone else I know. She's now taken that experience to Substack, where she's thinking about the creators, the people who are writing newsletters on Substack and how to support them. Nadia and I have known each other for a very long time. She's a very close friend of mine. Uh, We were roommates and we were co-founders in the past. And so we had a lot of fun in this conversation. You're going to absolutely love it. Let's dive in. All right. Well, then let's kick it off. Nadia, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We know each other. We should just say that up front that we we know each other pretty well. We were roommates and co-founders, friends, still friends. We met on Craigslist. We met on Craigslist. We are... (laughs) a Craigslist success story. Uh, when I moved to San Francisco, I found an apartment on Craigslist and Nadia was one of the roommates there. And I came in for an interview and I guess I crushed the interview. Did you bring beer? I can't remember if you bribed us. I don't think I did. I don't, I wasn't that savvy yet. This, you, this was like, it was a second apartment I looked at when I moved to San Francisco. So I was very lucky. You got really lucky. You just wowed us with your charisma. I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> I think you're all so distracted joking with each other. I just kind of sat quietly in the corner. And then at the end, you're like, yeah, you seem cool. It's true. Maybe we just had a really good time with ourselves and then you were there. So we decided we had a good time with you. Uh, that's the move. If you're looking for an apartment, I recommend saying nothing in your interview and just let roommates talk to each other, assuming they like each other. Worked for you. It did. Okay. Well, so so that's a little context, but I'm very excited. I don't think we've ever had a chat in quote unquote public on a podcast or anything like this. So excited to like be able to actually dive into some really cool topics because kind of coincidentally, you've also, your a lot of your career has been focused on community. That's right. We weirdly, our paths have continued to cross even when we're not trying. Yes, weirdly enough. Um, so, well, why don't we start off and just kind of share your story and your background and, and your path to where you are today. Today, you're you know, working on community at Substack. Uh, you publish a book on making in public. So you've done a lot, you're doing a lot of incredible work right now, but what was the path to get you there? Right now, as as you mentioned, um, I'm working at Substack, focusing on our um, writer experience team, which focuses on content, editorial, community, things like that. And I joined about a year ago. And prior to being at Substack, I spent about the last five-ish years um, diving really deeply into the world of open source developers and trying to understand how open source software is produced, which sounds like a really boring topic, but I found, <laughs> I thought it was fascinating. Um, in that, like, I mean, we think about software as being this fairly dry topic, but the way that open source software is produced is through these efforts of volunteer developers, um, people who might not necessarily know each other, open source just to sort of back up a little bit, is um, code that anyone can write and publish online that anyone is freely available to use, but also anyone can contribute back to. And so I was trying to understand like how all these developers are writing and collaborating on code that every company is using and relying on, even if they don't necessarily know each other. And so there's a lot of really just interesting community and social dynamics to uncover there. Um, But it was a very like self-directed kind of path. Um, I didn't necessarily know what I was doing. I kind of started out by trying to understand what in technology is not venture backable, but is still really valuable to the tech industry. Um, And that was kind of like what led me into stumbling upon quite literally um, the world of open source software, which like every software company relies on, but like not that many people know very much about like, what is this sort of like digital infrastructure that is being made by a bunch of strangers on the internet. What made you interested in that question of what is not VC backable? 
Um, I think I just felt very, and maybe some of this was coming out of like our shared experiences, David, of like people come to tech to talk about impact, uh, making an impact on the world. And at least back then, that was, I don't know, maybe like early 2010s, it felt like the way that you're supposed to make an impact is you start a company or you maybe make enough money that you become an investor. So you're either investing in companies or you're starting companies. And it's like, you're either a founder or you're an investor. Um, and that's how you make an impact in tech. And I kind of just, maybe for myself, I felt like I didn't fit into that mold. I didn't necessarily want to be a founder um, as I learned. And I didn't necessarily want to be an investor as I also learned, but I still felt like I had something to contribute to tech, right? So maybe even just like selfishly, I was trying to understand, well, like what are other ways that like tech should mean so much more than just startups and venture capital, right? Like there are other reasons why people are drawn to this industry and to this culture and, and yeah, just wanting to uncover those stories. And so I think looking, trying to look explicitly outside of that startup venture kind of binary and saying like what else is there was kind of the impetus for that but ended up in open source because i mean i didn't realize i'd you know been sort of like a fairly amateur developer and um, had used open source myself and seen that it was this like magical thing where you can write and a lot of code with very few lines of code because you're using other people's libraries and other people's open source projects so it just like made my life easier but i didn't really fully appreciate just how much um, the entire software industry is built on open source software until I started just digging into it. And yeah, and, and so kind of just fell down the rabbit hole of that. And for a while, didn't exactly know how I was going to support myself to do that. But I ended up getting a grant from the Ford Foundation and published a report about it and uh, was just sort of like writing and blogging about what I was finding by like talking to open source developers and ended up joining GitHub to focus on improving the open source developer experience, which was a, a really great um, experience to just sort of like see from the platform perspective of like GitHub being the platform that most open source software is built on. Um, so I got exposure to a lot of different developers, different types of projects, um, which, yeah, just really enriched my learning. And then I left and found a sort of independent researcher position at a company called Protocol Labs to just like basically focus on writing this book, Working in Public, which came out this summer. So uh, yeah, I guess like my path coming to Substack was this mix of kind of like self-directed research and some time spent more hands-on inside a company and then wanting to sort of like summarize those those learnings in a book. Yeah, I mean, you, you have such like a diverse range of experience from founder to VC to researcher to individual contributor. Um, so it's pretty cool to see that range of experience. Um, and I, I've told you this already personally, but, you know, your writing has... I think everyone who talks about open source like opens up with like, well, it's pretty boring, but you know, I, I look at open source, but your writing has developed so much. Like your, your voice and the way you write about it is beautiful. Frankly, it, it's articulated and you bring in lots of kind of outside stories and outside perspectives. So for everyone listening, highly recommend reading everything that Nadia writes on her newsletter and her blog, uh, the book, of course, because it, it's certainly not boring when you write about it. Thank you. Yeah, I I keep thinking um my I'm like oh my writing's my writing hasn't changed at all. What are people talking about? And then I go back to things they wrote five years ago. I'm like oh, ugh, which is what I'm trying to back. say is you were a really shit writer a <laughs> yeah, long time really ago, shitty. and it's really come a long way. <laughs> it's got you really vastly improved. Over <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's true though. It, it takes work because I mean I think probably everyone who writes about open source says sorry, it's a boring topic because we're we've seen a lot of the blank stares <laughs> get when yeah. you talk about open source. So I always feel the need to apologize. Yeah. Well, and, and I think what's really cool is open source is kind of like the OG internet community in a lot of ways. And, and a lot of what we see today and what we call internet communities really are rooted in some of the kind of foundation that was built in the open source space. Yes, definitely. That's what's so fascinating about the space. And I think like open source basically found mainstream traction in the late 1990s, early 2000s, which was right around the same time as the rise of mainstream consumer internet. So those two things were sort of like paralleling each other. And there was so much writing from those like, you know, 20 years ago, uh, where people were talking about like open source is this, you know, poster child and this example of what communities could be, because you have like 
all these random people who don't know each other, they're collaborating to produce something of economic value that is competing now with like proprietary closed source software at other companies. And they're just like releasing it for free. It's so crazy. It's like very similar to sort of like the Wikipedia story as well. And so there's so much like early inspiration around that. And then I feel like open source kind of kept going and people's still continue to use it. In fact, they use it at a scale that's vastly greater than what it was 20 years ago. Um, so open source succeeded in a lot of ways, but then we kind of just like stopped talking about how it was produced. We were like, but I feel like there's still so many insights to glean from the way in which open source has changed over the last 20 years and the way that online communities have changed. Um, they continue to parallel one another, but we kind of stopped looking at open source as this like source of inspiration, which um, part of the goal of writing the book was just to be like, hey, there are still a lot of things to learn from this topic. Totally. Isn't there, I remember seeing some sort of wild stat that was like 99% of the internet is powered by open source software or something like that. Yeah, there's a stat from um, NPM, which is a platform for hosting um, JavaScript, a lot of JavaScript open source projects that says something like they claim that 97% of an application's code, so kind of more at the application layer, um, involves something that was published on NPM. I think that was the stat, um, if I'm remembering correctly, but no one really knows how much open source is used at companies because like companies keep their code private. So it's really hard to quantify, but for sure it's somewhere in the like, I don't know, I mean, maybe finger they are like more than 70% and probably more like 90% mm. of like all software, which is really crazy. And um, yeah, I mean like any, so, I mean, just to sort of like walk through that example a little bit as well. If you're a developer who's working at Facebook like obviously Facebook itself is not open source. You can't inspect or view that code or use it um, behind like, yeah, the Facebook application. But that developer is going around literally just like on the internet and finding open source projects um, and including that code in their own code. Yeah, so like even though Facebook itself is not open source, um, the they're using all these other projects that are around the internet. Right. It's pretty interesting how, you know, the the startup internet world that is so driven by money and VC and you unicorns and all all the kind of financial aspect of things that you hear about. And yet so much of the internet and so much of tech is driven by essentially free software created by volunteers. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it really brought down the costs of starting a company that and other things like cloud computing. Um, but the cost of writing software is so much cheaper than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And that's in large part due to all this freely available code that's online now. Right. So we'd love to dive into the book a little bit. I know kind of one of the core premises is this misconception of open source and how you know people perceive it as there's all of these different people contributing to this project. And it's kind of like the power of the crowd, the power of the masses to all contribute but in your research, you found that it's for the most part, these individuals or very small groups who are doing the lion's share of the work and actually adding all of these kind of passive contributors creates more work for them. And so they get overwhelmed. Can you explain a little bit more? Like what, what is that interesting insight that you kind of pulled out that people don't seem to understand about open source software? Yeah. So the typical explanation of how open source works right now is usually centered around this idea of a community of developers. And I'm even guilty of having repeated that several times myself so far in this conversation. But again, it's like that Wikipedia model where like all the Wikipedia articles are edited by people around the world and you just like don't necessarily know who they all are, but everyone's collaborating, contributing. And so you get this image in your head of like, oh, open source software is being created by like thousands of developers that are in this like big, happy pile of fun, just like working together on the same piece of software. Uh, in reality, most projects, I'd say like the long tail of open source projects probably have like one or a small handful of maintainers that are doing the vast majority of the work. And so there, there are examples of projects that are bigger and very like well-known, like Linux is another um, open source project that probably a lot of people have heard of. There are projects that are really, really big and do have lots of contributors, but they occupy a lot of our mind share, but like most open source projects now, because there's this long tail of much smaller projects, don't operate that way at all. And so it just was this really interesting realization that you think that all these people are contributing to open source and working together and stuff, but actually like most of the work is falling on one or a few maintainers, but the number of people using the project has only 
massively increased by 100x or 200x or whatever it is. And so like there are tons of people that are still asking questions about the project or uh, making feature requests or asking how do I use this thing? But the number of people supporting the project has not grown with that. So in the past, you might have had like, you know, let's say 10 developers that are working on a thing that like a thousand people are using. And now you might have two developers working on something that like a million people are benefiting from. And so it's, it's a very different set of stakes. And what I wanted to understand over the past few years and explain this topic was like, what does the structure look like for those maintainers to not lose their sanity, basically. Mm. They can't possibly welcome all contributions when they're getting a lot of sort of like spammy requests. I mean, picture like whatever you might see in a comment section is the kind of stuff that they're getting inbound. And those things are called contributions, but they're not really contributions. They're people complaining about stuff or saying this doesn't work or why don't you do this? And some of those comments are even sort of like abusive and just really unpleasant. And so maintainers have had to adapt to this by saying, okay, we can't just welcome everyone into this community with open arms because I'm just getting like the worst of the internet coming at me. So how do I actually like put up some barriers and learn how to navigate that level of like public inbound volume? And I think it's not that different from what a lot of creators are experiencing on platforms where if you're a really popular YouTube influencer or Twitch streamer, like you're also getting a lot of just like inbound because you're like creating something for the benefit of like a very wide audience. And, and a large public public sphere and you can't just like talk to everyone as though you would talk to your neighbor like you have just sort of like a lower context environment there and so th that's some of the just this idea that you can put things out in public but they don't necessarily have to be participatory because at a certain scale it's just not possible to have a fully participatory community is kind of the underlying thesis i was trying to trying to understand yeah, and I mean, you brought up Wikipedia, which is an interesting example as well, where I remember recently there was that article where it's like one guy writes yeah. something like 60% of the articles on Wikipedia or something. Yeah, it's it's funny that people do use Wikipedia as an example of collaboration because in reality, there's like, yeah, as you said, one guy who ed has edited, I think, like a third of all English um, Wikipedia articles. So even in that case, there are these sort of like power laws that happen where it's just, I mean, if you think about the role of a maintainer or anyone that's working like across a project, like more laterally, a project leader in any sort of case, um, you have to have a lot of context for a lot of different kinds of situations. And it's not like it's not just easy for any random person to come in and like understand those organizational complexities. And so it makes sense that there might be like, there's only really like one person that can understand all the different kinds of contributions and coordinate them together. I mean, it's kind of like a bummer, right? Like it's kind of like, <laughs> like this dream of kind of... Community is the first. <laughs> it's like the community driven internet or or this kind of highly collaborative space. And then we realize actually... It's just a few really capable or really motivated people who are driving all of this. Yeah. I mean, I think I wanted the conversation to be additive um, and hopefully doesn't feel like a, you know, a bait and switch or something in that. And this is part of my interest in identifying different types of projects, because I still think there are projects that are very collaborative with lots of different kinds of contributors and they grow in a different way from a project that has one maintainer and like a huge audience. And there are still sort of like the smaller hobbyist clubs of like not that many people use this project, but most people that are using it are also contributing. And so there are, it's not that I think like that doesn't exist at all anywhere, but it's just that there are other types of models. And right now I feel like we only really have one set of vocabulary to talk about like what an online community looks like, but there are actually lots of different kinds of sizes and shapes of communities. And you, you kind of have a bit of a definition for that that you find in your book, right? Yeah, this is the, some of the vocabulary that I, I was thinking of around the federations and the stadiums, which I can talk about a little bit here. Right. I was basically trying to separate out like what is a contributor to a project versus a pure user of a project because in open source there's sort of this common wisdom that if you're a user of a project you might as well be a contributor or like every user is a potential contributor but we know that's not true for online communities in general right like there's some people that just consume content and don't contribute anything back um, and so I was trying to understand the growth of open source projects along both of those axes of what does their user growth look like and what does their contributor growth look like. And there are some projects where you might get tons of people using it, but not that many people contribute back because maybe the project is hard to contribute to or it's some really niche, obscure thing that 
there aren't that many people who have the skills to contribute to it or whatever the case, those two things don't always grow at the same rate. And so, yeah, the terms that I come up with, there's the federations, which are kind of like the Linuxes of the world or picture any sort of like very, very big community with a lot of contributors that have both high user growth and high contributor growth. So lots of people contributing and lots of people using it. And so they have a different, they have a strategy that is maybe more typical of what we think of when we think of communities where they are actively trying to recruit more members because their contributor growth like is is going in in this really um, high direction, I guess. And so they're, they are really like trying to take that active, like community growth, like everybody participate kind of strategy. And then you have these clubs that are pretty similar levels of user and contributor growth. So uh, that's what I was sort of referring to before of picture like a hobbyist club of like a hundred people or something. And everyone kind of knows each other already. There's kind of high context um, for what each person is doing, but maybe you're like, Everyone is there because they're interested in some really weird topic. So it's never going to gain mainstream adoption, but everyone there is there because they're really committed. And so that's, that's another type of project. And then the third one that's sort of just interesting to talk about here is a stadium model, which I think is kind of like the newer model of communities that we're seeing these days that are more like communities that form around an individual creator. So you don't have that many people contributing to the project, but you do have a very wide audience of users. And so as, as mentioned, I, I feel like this is something we are seeing with the rise of creators on platforms where it is sort of like one person facing the stage. And it is a community in its own sort of way where the people who are fans of your work are all talking to each other and they might be contributing in ways that, that like you might not, not always see, like they're off evangelizing your project or talking about it to other people. And they consider themselves to be part of like the community that is centered around this creator or this person and their work. Um, but it's not really a community in the sense of like a hobbyist group where everyone's kind of milling about with their lemonade and talking about, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> um, like a, a church, I have this image of like a church group in my head, which always involves lemonade for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's a very different kind of model to be standing in the middle of a stadium versus milling around after, after church service. Yeah. I mean, this, this kind of gets at a core conversation that's been happening in the world of community and internet communities for a long time, which is like the definition of community mm. and, and folks liking to kind of proclaim a group is or isn't a community or is a community versus an audience or something like that. And I really like this framing of kind of thinking about it in terms of like who's contributing and how are they contributing? It's like everyone is contributing in some way, but it, it may not be that they're creating content in the same way. Definitely. It's, I mean, it's up in the air in open source as well of like, what is a contributor? Because some people will say, well, if you're on a question and answer site answering questions about the project, you're a contributor, but they're not actually contributing to the code base. They're just contributing to like the greater ecosystem of questions, right? And so do those people consider themselves a contributor or a user? And yeah, similarly, an analogy for like a creator or something, if you have a famous musician and someone starts a fan club about your work, like are they consumers of your stuff or are they part of like an active community, mm. even if they're not like interacting with the musician directly? Super interesting. Yeah, it, it's when people talk about kind of the definition of community, they'll often say, sometimes people will describe it based on an emotion, like the sense of community, a, a feeling of community. Um, but this is kind of a working definition of it based on contribution, based on action. And that's a pretty interesting distinction. Yeah. And I think like for a stadium, it's like you're, everyone in that community is oriented somehow towards the creator, even if they're not directly interacting with them. But like, you're only here because of the creator. Like I always think of like a street performer or something where we're all gathered to like listen to this person's music. And then you might end up like striking up a conversation with the person next to you, but you would have never met that person if you hadn't both been attracted to the same thing. So it is a community in the sense that you're, you are coming together over a shared interest, but everyone is sort of like oriented towards a stage. Right, right. And that audience is part of creating that experience. Because if that creator was just on a stage on their own and no one was there to listen to it, it would be a wholly different community experience. Yeah, that's right. You, you need that sort of audience energy, I guess, in order to even like really be a creator in that same sort of way. Have you found that what you've discovered in open source translates broadly to all communities? Yeah, I think it helps for me what happened in open source and is continuing to happen in open source really helps me understand what was happening to 
the social web in the past couple of years. And at the time that I started writing this book at the end of 2018, it felt like some of these things were just happening and I was really having trouble articulating them. And then just like the book writing process and seeing what was happening in the social web, those two things were sort of like paralleling each other. And I was just like, oh, these two things are actually really connected where like, I'm sure a lot of folks have had this feeling of, okay, we have our very public stages. Um, We have Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn or wherever it is you like to sort of like shout from the rooftops. But in the past couple of years, people have also been retreating to these quieter spaces, much greater use of things like group chats, podcasts, newsletters, um, which we're obviously experiencing at Substack. And I think it gets to this feeling of like, okay, like Twitter or Instagram, whatever is just like too public. And like, I don't always want to be talking to a whole bunch of screaming strangers, um, you know, in a stadium. Um, Sometimes I want to just talk to like my people and that takes different forms. And so like the group chat is a lot like the club model that I talked about where it's like small, but like kind of finite set of growth, but everyone that's using quote unquote is also contributing. A newsletter is kind of like a stadium where you have like one creator who's broadcasting out to a list of subscribers, but is not necessarily interacting with them in the same way sort of way. And then you have these sort of like very public watering holes, which I don't think are like going away necessarily. But what I what I felt over the past couple of years is that we're just getting these sort of more nuanced versions of the social web so that it didn't just end with like, we made Facebook and that's it. You know, like there, it's not just about what is the next huge consumer social platform that's going to be created, but like there are other types of needs that people have when they want to interact with each other online. And we just need vocabulary to describe like how that is sort of breaking up. And the way I felt like I was able to understand that was through going really deep on open source and seeing that like, oh, these projects and the ways that they're all different from each other is actually not so different from the ways that like all these social platforms are different from each other. There's so much to dig in there. Super interesting. Is there advice that you would give to community builders based on kind of these insights that you found where, I don't know, maybe it is a large community and and their core contributors are overwhelmed? Or I guess looking at the kind of challenges that you've identified, what would you recommend community builders take away from that? Oh, gosh. Um, probably, I mean, yeah, there, there's so many... I know, I'm asking a researcher <laughs> to give advice. It's it's really cruel of me. I was just like, there's so many different angles you could take here. I think maybe just starting with like that that meta point of... I mean, we hear this at least on Substack of like, oh, Facebook is dead or dying or something. And I don't know, people just want to proclaim the death of every popular social media platform for some reason. I don't think they're really going anywhere. I think we just have different spaces. And I think probably a lot of community builders feel that intuitively where it's like, sometimes you want the main stage and sometimes you want a small space for people to just sort of like interact and socialize and you might have felt that in planning like a physical conference space, right? Where it's like people are interacting in different ways in the same space. And so thinking about that and like port that over to like, what does it feel like to do that digitally where like we might also, you might have the same community of people online who want to interact on like Twitter, but then they also want to interact in like a Facebook group where they also want to interact in like small chats or whatever um, and giving people like all those different sort of nuanced spaces. Mm. And then, yeah, I think like the other thing that just comes to mind is there are really different growth trajectories for something like a federation style community versus a stadium where encouraging more people to participate is not always the right answer for any given community, even though it feels really good to say that you're encouraging participation. But like some people are just going to stick around longer than other people. Sometimes people have very transactional relationships with the community and that's not a bad thing. Um, It just is a matter of like knowing which is which. Um, And a lot of maintainers have experienced this with their open source projects where they're like, you know, I invested hours trying to onboard this new contributor and help them make their first contribution. And then they made the contribution and then they just disappeared. And I feel like I wasted all this time. But I think like there's a learning there of not every person you invest all your time into is going to stick around and that's okay. But then you have to think about like, how do I conserve my own time? And so, yeah, just like different types of members want different things out of your community. And it's not as simple as just saying like everybody participate or, or whatever. Totally. Yeah. And it sounds like understanding what kind of community you're building is, is really critical because if you're holding a federation to the community standards of a stadium or a club, you're going to be disappointed. That's right. 
Yeah. Which is often what it ha- what happens, right? It's like, well, the sense of community here isn't very strong because there's so many people in this space now. Well, that's because it probably converted from a, a club into a stadium or federation or it just grew. I mean, it sounds like size is actually a pretty core component of this. And and once it reaches a certain size, it moves away from like the 20 person group where everyone can kind of contribute in a highway and there's a lot of visibility into, uh, okay, there's like these striations of contribution and this hierarchy of leadership in a way that that forms as these groups grow. And that just changes a lot of the dynamics. Yeah, definitely. Um, I didn't mention like the fourth type of um, community. There's a fourth? You've been holding out on us? That's really boring. Sorry. Um, Which is why I didn't mention it before. But it's this uh, idea of a toy and a toy has not that many contributors and not that many users. But I think of it as sort of like the seed of what grows into other types of communities where a toy might be, I'm just tinkering with this piece of code in my spare time and I know no one's really looking at it I'm doing it in public because why not but then maybe a bunch of people discover it and then it grows into becoming like a club where now you have like a hundred people that are using your project and also starting to give you feedback and you're like oh this is cool but then at some point maybe it hits this like mass scale of adoption and then suddenly you have like thousands of people flooding in you're like whoa this is a whole different kind of thing and then it might grow into either a stadium or a federation but like you said I think um it's understanding which what expectations you should have for different types of communities. Because if you're a stadium where it's like kind of centered around like a prominent leader or like one person, and there just aren't going to be that many people participating because they're there to like hear from that person. Telling people to just sort of like pitch in is like not going to be that helpful. Whereas in like a federation, you actually do want to be growing your membership. It's like you can't always turn a cult into a community, I guess. Yeah, nor should you want to. I, lo- I love the concept of the toy. I can't believe you held out on us for that, but we got there. Thanks but I, I think yeah, I dragged it out of you. But I think that's like a useful concept because I think that's actually how most communities start. I tweeted the other day something like, uh, everyone who's ever started a large community meant to start a small community. <laughs> yeah, very accurate. Um, so many open source maintainers are like, I honestly did not know it was going to turn into this. And now what do I do? Right. Yeah. It starts like, hey, I just had five people together for dinner. I started organizing brunches and, you know, all of a sudden you have product hunt, right? Like that's how Ryan started product hunt. It just ballooned from just a few good people getting together into a pretty massive platform with obviously that's another example where there's many, many, many different levels of contribution. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. So segueing a little bit then to what you're doing now, given all the research you've done in open source and everything you've learned about communities, the kinds of things that were exciting to you, what brought you to working at Substack? Because you were the third employee? Second. Second employee, but like third person or something, right? There were three founders and then there was, and then I joined as a second employee. Okay, cool. Awesome. So yeah, so you joined this Obviously, like it was already pretty well known and like growing, but I'm still blown away by how few people are on the Substack team <laughs> for the amount of awareness and users it has and everything. So that on, on its own is incredible. But what made you decide to join a company like Substack and be a contributor to a company again? I really like the experience of writing the book. <laughs> it's like, it's fine because if you read the book, like, towards the end of the conclusion, then I start talking about like newsletters in the conclusion. And so even though this isn't exactly the way it really happened, it's, it it sort of creates this image of like, ah, I just like wrote about how like open source applies to a bunch of newsletters and like journalism (laughs) as well. And I like finished the book and I was like, you know what, I'm going to go work at Substack, Um, which is a little bit of what happened. That's a pretty good resume to submit to Substack. Yeah. Yeah. I, I came to Substack for a couple of reasons. Like one, I had the experience myself of being a writer who is just like really into this weird, semi-boring to other people niche topic um, and had the experience of writing blog posts about it and writing a newsletter about open source and and then like writing a book. And yeah, my newsletter ended up becoming like a huge part of like the community that I was able to grow around my work. And so feeling that personal shift myself of like, Oh, newsletters used to be kind of more like these marketing mailing lists, which those still exist as well. But then there's this like kind of more editorialized personal newsletter style that is emerging that I'm feeling myself as I'm writing a newsletter. Um, And surely I can't be the only person that's thinking about this. So that was like one aspect of it. Um, And like wanting 
to bring that to other writers as well of like just the sheer joy that I personally had in being able to explore a topic um, with such depth. But then there's just so many parallels between open source developers and writers in the sense of like, they're both creators. They're just creating with different things. Like one person creates with code and one person creates with words and are both kind of doing this thing of like a software developer might have a full-time job at a software company, but then they write open source in their spare time. And similarly, you have like journalists who might work for a media outlet, but then like secretly wish they were writing something else in their nights and weekends. And so there's a lot of parallels there of just like, how do we encourage these sorts of creators to go full-time on their dreams. And then I guess, yeah, maybe there's like a third aspect here of for myself in trying to sort out some of these models around like the evolving social web in writing the book. I came out of it being like, oh, like if I really believe that stadiums are this like interesting new dynamic in the social web and that they're fairly like new-ish or we're just learning how to talk about them, um, where can I go to understand that more deeply? Because I, I came away from the book like jazzed on my own topic, right? So I was like, I want to, you know, learn more about the thing I just spent a year and a half digging deep on and, and writing about. And yeah, I was just sort of thinking, well, you know, I feel like podcast industry is sort of maturing in some ways or like it's not quite like as on the ground um, as I might want to be. And like if I, you know, go work for any sort of social media company, like those are also all pretty big at this point. Like where can I go where I'm going to like see it developing for the first time? And yeah, it had Substack on the brain that whole year really since I had first learned about it, having written a newsletter myself, um, I actually like had first met one of the co-founders because he had like reached out to me in January of of last year uh, to ask about like me moving my newsletter to Substack and just, you know, random cold DM. And I actually didn't even respond to him at the time because I was like, (laughs) but it was the first time I learned what Substack was. And then I kind of had on the brain all year. And then I was like, yeah, I just feel like the most interesting place I can go to understand this creator centric community model is going to be at a place that is doing that. So I reached out to uh, that same co-founder, Hamish. Um, I was just like, I want to work here. And yeah, rest is rest is history. So I feel like I'm getting to kind of put a lot of this stuff that I was writing about and thinking about in the book into practice every day at work. Awesome. Very cool. And so, so far, you know, how, how does Substack define community and, and what is kind of your your core objective leading community there that you're trying to achieve? The writing experience team deals with a bunch of different aspects of um, editorial and community and content. And my colleague Ellie is our uh, community lead. And so she's she's focusing full time on, on community. And like, yeah, I don't really know. I feel like we're still so early on community for ourselves with our writers that um, we're probably still just like we're still trying to learn. It's interesting being here versus the time I spent at GitHub um, and thinking about sort of like what does what did like open source developers need from GitHub versus what do newsletter writers need from Substack and at GitHub I felt like GitHub had been around for I don't know I think it's been around for at least ten years at this point um, so it was a fairly mature company and so a lot of things that open source developers needed were kind of in those later stages I think of community development where they kind of they know what the product is about they're fairly savvy about it. They are in more the stage of like, I have things I want to fix and like, you know, I want to air my grievances and and need a lot more, I think, like soothing and um, yeah, just like demonstrating that like we care, right? And uh, whereas at Substack, like the concept of writing newsletters is still so new. And so it's this really fun, fresh topic where like a lot of people are just sort of like, hey, this newsletter thing seems interesting, but I don't know what it is. Can you tell me? And so there's a more of a mix of like education that we have to do around what does it mean to write a newsletter in this style? What does it mean as its own creative medium and format? And how do I be successful on Substack? It's and Most of our writers are free, but then writers who are going paid and, and launching a paid newsletter is like a whole other question of like, what the heck is a paid newsletter? Like I hear I can make money doing this thing. How do I do that? Um, so there's a lot more of that sort of like fresh, bright-eyed kind of energy, I think, at, at Substack than I felt on a topic that was like much more mature. Right. Um, so it's still sort of like evolving and learning and um, and a lot of writers who are kind of like, I just want to meet other writers. Like, I don't know what I'm doing and I want to like know what other people are doing. And I think all sort of like creative communities are interesting in this way where in the end, like a lot of the work you're doing is very solo. You're just kind of like alone all day, like especially for like writers, right? Like you can talk to other writers about their experience, but like you in the end have to go back to just your computer or 
notebook or whatever it is you're writing on and just like tap it out. And that can be very isolating and, and kind of like emotionally difficult. And so I think like often creators are looking for those kinds of outlets to be like, okay, I know that this work is very like isolating, but I just want to know that I'm not the only person feeling isolated. Um, so I think there's a lot of that in creative communities of uh, people just looking for solidarity, someone who's like going through the process with them and, um, and not feeling so alone. Totally. And so are you starting to kind of facilitate those spaces for them to connect with each other and support each other? Yeah, definitely. And all credit goes to um, my colleague, Ellie, who's uh, focused on our community efforts, but she launched, she joined and like almost immediately launched this um, program called Bridge to connect um, experienced writers on Substack with more emerging writers, a mentorship program for um, just, yeah, writers trying to connect with other writers. Um, She's also working on an online community for um, helping connect writers to each other. We've done a bunch of kind of like my early experience before Ellie joined, um, did a bunch of like writer workshops where uh, we'd have a, a writer kind of just present on what they've been doing and present on some specific aspect, like here's how I launched paid or here's how I got to know my community of subscribers. And then like those were really popular because it was kind of like the first time that people could actually like see each other in a, a live format mm-hmm. um, as a subsect writer. And, um, and it, it did have a little bit of that stadium vibe where like someone was presenting, but then in the live chat, um, since all this happened virtually this year, people were sort of like connecting with each other and like having this sort of like sidebar chat, which was really cool. And so, yeah, you're like looking at the main stage and learning from the main stage and they're also kind of like talking to each other. Love it. Well, yeah, I imagine this is a program that's going to grow quite a bit and it's so primed to be a really uh engaged and meaningful community because yeah as a fellow writer it is incredibly isolating and whenever people with a certain identity feel isolated you know there's a great opportunity for community yes exactly i'm curious so in in kind of what you just described of people being curious like what's unique about writing a newsletter and why should i consider doing a newsletter over, let's say, a blog or even starting a group community or something else. So I'm curious, what is your answer there? Why should people be writing newsletters today and what's unique about that experience? I mean, I guess I could say like newsletters versus what? And so newsletters versus like Twitter or versus a blog are sort of like different sets of answers. But I'll talk a little bit about like what I find really exciting about newsletters, which is this feeling, I think, of being able to talk to like your people again. Um, I think we've lost some of that context on, say, Twitter, where, yeah, you're talking to your people, but then anyone else can kind of like elbow their way into your conversation and start shouting at you, which is yes, they do. And they do. Right. And so I think like there are people who are sort of craving a little bit more that space of, okay, like maybe I'll do my super public stuff on Twitter, but like, I also want a quieter space to just like know that I'm talking to the same people every time. And that's where I think like the power of having a subscriber list is really compelling because I had this feeling when I was blogging and I still write blog posts um, occasionally, but like you write a blog post and you don't necessarily know who's going to read it or not read it. Whereas when you send out a newsletter, you know you're sending an email that lands in someone's inbox and the same X number of subscribers is opening that and reading it every time. And the open rates for these more like editorial style newsletters are much higher than they are for like, you know, corporate email marketing. People are subscribing to like a much more intimate relationship with you and you have a more intimate relationship with them. Um, so I feel much more comfortable saying things in my newsletter than versus what I might say on Twitter, because I know that I can say things that are a little bit weird or a little bit, you know, controversial, but these people have been like following me at some point they had to like actively subscribe to my list. And so they have somewhat more context for me than the average person on Twitter where your stuff can be taken totally out of context. Mm. Um, so I feel like that's a really nice aspect of it is that it's, and, and what really works for newsletters more than any other sort of medium I can think of is, yeah, one, one that feeling of like, I'm coming back to my same audience and talking to the same people over and over again. I can express myself in a more long form space than being told that I need to like condense my thoughts. Like mm-hmm. um, on Twitter, I'm sort of like flattening out my thoughts and saying, okay, how do I fit this into something very short versus on newsletters can be really long and like people don't really seem to mind. In fact, it's a good thing. Right. So, yeah. I feel like that, that aspect is just really nice as well. What would you say are like the keys to a successful newsletter? I think leaning into that relationship aspect with subscribers is a critical difference. Uh, I've seen, 
I think there is, and it's hard because newsletters are a new creative medium. And so um, people sometimes think, and I, I did this with my newsletter when I first started, where it's like, oh, my newsletter is a place to update people about like a blog post I wrote or something. And so I'd write these really short emails where I'd just be like, hey, I like, you know, I published another post and like read this. And it was just like bullet points. And I was trying to be very fast because I would feel really bad about being in someone's inbox. I'm like, oh God, I, I better get out of here before they get annoyed. Mm. So trying to keep it like very short and snappy. And I feel like that's often what we're told when we write things, like keep it short. Um, but I think the ones that do really well in, in newsletter format are people that are just like leaning into it and being like, okay, you asked for me in your inbox because you actually want to hear from me and I'm going to work to earn that. And so avoiding things that are, like pure list curation kind of things where it's just like, here's 20 links I read without any context, which there is some value, I guess, in people wanting to read like what someone else is curating, but it's just harder to differentiate yourself versus writing something that's a little bit more long form and narrative of like, here's how I'm thinking about a thing in the news this week, or here's how I'm going to analyze this situation. And people are more interested in reading your analysis than they are like right. a bunch of, of links that you might share. And like, you know, sharing some links is also nice. I still do it too, but, but there's a, a clear sort of difference there, I think, in how people are using it. Right. Yeah. You have a combination of like the long form and then you follow it up with like, here's a bunch of interesting things that I've read. You have your notes that you share as well. So I think your yours is a good example of having that balance. Yeah. And it sounds like, yeah. So a key is just kind of keeping the content in the newsletter rather than it being something that you're trying to get people to click out of to go somewhere else and, yeah. and get the content somewhere else. Yeah. And I think that's a very like common desire people have when they start writing newsletters because that is the way that they used to be. That was kind of what they were for. But, and so thinking of it as like, oh, I can write in the newsletter. I can just write a really long right. email. Is that okay? Yeah. And yeah, just kind of like mentally getting over that and being like, okay, that's what people want. So Yeah. Yeah, I guess like one fear that comes up uh, that's come up for me with, you know, should I start a newsletter, which I can't even get myself to write any blogs these days. So I have no business starting a newsletter. But when I have thought about this, um, it's maybe a fear of like not as many people are going to be able to read it. And part of the reason I like to write is kind of like openly sharing what I'm learning in public and making sure people have access to it. And so if I publish on my blog or on something like Medium or somewhere else, then like people will find it organically. And if it's a good piece of content, it can kind of spread on its own. Whereas like a newsletter, you're kind of limited in that way. Is, is that a unjustified fear? Yes, it is unjustified. <laughs> no, I, a little bit. I, the big difference I think with Substack versus it's comp most commonly used predecessor, which was Tiny Letter. Um, and I experienced this going from Tiny Letter to Substack is the we make the archive kind of like a front and center thing about your newsletter. So it's yeah. not just that you send us email, but you also have a post that's on the web that's easily referenced. People can link to your newsletter post just like they would anything else on the web. Um, so it is kind of this hybrid. We, we say newsletters because it's easier for someone to wrap their head around newsletter, but it is Substack is actually a little bit more of a newsletter blog hybrid in that way. Um, and I only actually discovered like towards the end of my time using Tiny Letter that, oh, I can make an archive public on Tiny Letter as well. Um, but no one ever linked to like my Tiny Letter archive. Like, I don't know why it just like, it's sort of buried and it feels kind of transgressive. Um, whereas like when I publish a newsletter, people will just link to my Substack link. So yeah, I think there's something there around like wanting a little bit of that permanence and discoverability. And I think we do a good job of um, making both of those things possible. That makes sense. Yeah. And I've definitely discovered a lot of newsletters by finding those archives. So it does seem to work better on Substack. I guess like one challenge, which is something that you, you've talked about in your book, which is this kind of like platformification of communities and spaces where you know, in in the older days of the internet, there were all these kind of indie communities and very unique and distinct spaces that then kind of just got coalesced into Facebook groups and Slack channels today. And kind of like a lot of communities look the same because they're all hosted on the same platforms. How do you avoid that happening with Substack where, you know, all the newsletters, some eventually will just kind of look and feel the same because they're all on Substack? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, it's something we talk about internally from a product perspective of how much um, customization do we give folks. And um, it's something that we are, I think there's probably more customization 
to offer than what we are currently doing. And it's something that we are exploring in kind of the, the near term. So I expect to see more of that soon where I've kind of wrestled with it from a design perspective. And I don't feel like I clearly know the answer to is in, on some platforms, it seems like we don't mind where everyone's stuff looks the same. Like I don't hear anyone complaining that their Twitter page is not customizable or like GitHub repositories for your software. Like they all look exactly the same and like everyone seems fine with that. So there are some kinds of social platforms where it doesn't seem to matter that it's not customizable. But then you think of something like Medium um, where people were asking for more customization and people do definitely ask about it with Substack. And so it's like, there is something else there. And I think maybe some of it is this feeling of like, well, Substack is my home. And so I want, my home to be decorated the way that like I want to decorate mm-hmm. it. Whereas Twitter, I'm mostly consuming it in this centralized feed instead of going to someone's page. And so I think there are like, yeah, sort of like different use cases there. But I mean, Substack is also interesting or any newsletter platform in that like we're also delivered to your inbox. And so if you're consuming your Substack newsletters through your inbox, then you're in some ways it's... it's it looks like every other email. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's just text. Yeah. Are you finding that any sort of like tone is becoming consistent across newsletters in the way Medium kind of took on this, like everyone who writes on Medium started like kind of sounding the same in a way? It's funny. I've been like waiting for that to happen because I, yeah, I don't remember that distinct feeling where it used to be like, ah, Medium article, it feels so like this particular mark of quality. And then after a while, like, oh, like I'm writing in medium style. I actually moved my yeah. medium a couple of years ago because I was just like, oh no, I'm starting to write like a medium person. Yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> it's, it's wild how that happens. It's so strange. Yeah, I've been kind of trying to watch out for that on Substack. I still feel like people are writing about so many different kinds of things on, on Substack. And that's you know, probably true of medium as well, but it, it will inevitably happen to us, I'm sure. But I haven't felt it yet. And I've been really heartened by that. And I think maybe a little part of it is that you're writing for your subscriber base and yeah. you're not trying to, yeah. I, I think that's still just like, if I can be excited about Substack for a second, I, I still feel like that's such a huge differentiator for me versus like any other platform I use where it's like, I'm not trying to get everyone's attention here. I'm just trying to speak to like the people that understand me. And so I can write however I want to write because they, they subscribe for me. They didn't subscribe to like get a generic Substack newsletter. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I think that's, what's going to keep it keep it real for, for the writers on there. They're, it's all about finding their own voice uh, yeah. rather than finding the voice that works on a platform. Yeah. And I hope we've set up the, the incentives that way so that it's like, it continues to be that. Yeah. Uh, last quick question on Substack. Do you, do you do any sort of like discoverability for people who write on Substack? Like do you help authors get discovered? We are working on it. Um, it's definitely something we have heard a lot of folks ask about both writers and readers. I mean, we, you know, primarily talk about writers at Substack, but we also serve readers who are attracted to Substack because they want to find interesting things to read from writers they might not have. Um, otherwise. The stadium. The, the stadium. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's something that we know we want to do more of and that we're interested in. We're, we are releasing a few things in that direction very soon. So watch this space in the next couple weeks and months. Um, but yeah, trying to make it easier, both for like readers to manage like all their subscriptions in one place. So for people that don't want to just read all their newsletters in their inbox, um, as well as thinking about like, how do we leverage writer recommendations to like, sort of like how do we do discovery in ways that are not the most obvious ways to do discovery and i feel like there is some sense of like you know bringing back the the old feeling of like a blog role where like a lot of writers want to cross promote and talk about each other and we've seen that work really well when people experiment with it organically and um so yeah how do we help how do we help people find other things that they they might be interested in is um something that we're exploring right now love it Last question, and we'll go into our rapid-fire question round. Uh, at the start of our conversation, you said that, you know, coming out of some of the startup experiences that, that we had, you kind of felt like there must be something more than just this kind of, you know, venture-backed, kind of financially-driven aspect of, of building companies and building technology. You've had a whole range of experiences now, from research to working on some really cool companies, uh, do you feel like you've found that thing or are you sort of still searching? I think so. I still feel like a little bit of like a weirdo in tech, which maybe everyone feels like a weirdo. <laughs> I don't know. You're the best kind of weirdo, Nadia. Thanks. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, I've sort of in more recent years tried to just sort of 
talked about myself as an independent researcher. And it kind of came out of this time with open source where I didn't know how else to describe what I was doing. Because for a while in the beginning, I really was just a weirdo asking too many questions of other people. And I didn't know how to like legitimize that a little bit. So people weren't like, who the heck are you? Um, and I would hear other people call me a researcher. So I was like, oh, I'm a researcher now. Um, so answer my questions. <laughs> so like, I, and I've kind of leaned into that because I do actually feel very strongly that there needs to be a path for people that are just sort of probing and asking questions um, outside of a typical academic institution where you are very close to like, you are part practitioner as well. Like mm. with my experience in open source, if I hadn't worked at GitHub, I wouldn't have really landed on the thesis that I did arrive at for the book um, because I had to just like be there doing this stuff um, to understand why it was so hard. And it was the same thing with like why I joined Substack where I was like, I think this stadium model is interesting, but I actually like need to go do it and see what it looks like because otherwise I'm not going to understand just by speculating on it. Mm. And so, yeah, I do think I've, I have settled into a little bit of a cycle now where I'm like, okay, like I like spending some time thinking and synthesizing the stuff uh, in, in a more abstract context. And then I like going and like doing the thing and like testing my hypotheses. And I, I feel like I can go back and forth on that for a while. And maybe that's just what works for me. But, but I also want to keep my mind open to like, I don't know, I always just want to be learning at the next thing that I'm doing. I think that's mostly what guides my work um, and what I'm excited about doing. And whether I'm learning by writing or learning by working at a company, it's it's all just fun for me. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's that's a really interesting topic. Maybe for the the next episode that I'll make you do with me. But this idea of like there should be distinct roles in the world of tech or any industry, probably. But where yeah, I really like that hybrid of practitioner and researcher, people who aren't beholden necessarily to the same kind of incentives and requirements that a lot of, you know, the VC ecosystem requires. And you can kind of yeah. have that outside perspective and dip your toes in when it's relevant. That it's a really interesting idea. Yeah. I imagine you're probably going to find a lot of those types at Substack as well uh, in, in the writers there, because I feel like that is kind of an archetype of a lot of the newsletters that I've read are these folks who kind of are more independent and, and kind of taking that more research driven or academic look or just kind of trying to get a kind of higher level perspective on these concepts. Definitely. Um, I was just thinking as you were saying that, that I, like really, I think content creators in general and sort of the explosion of that we've seen in recent years is speaking to that need for like people are going to want to learn in public and write in public and work in public or whatever um, and share what they're finding with others. And that in itself creates some sort of value. There is value to being a person that just is going really deeply on a topic and curating that information and then sharing it out. But we haven't quite figured out like how to help those people make money doing that full time, which is part of why I think we're seeing this rise of subscription focused businesses and business models for creators right now, which Substack is a part of, but there are plenty of other platforms that are also contributing to that. Um, and so it's just a very interesting time where I, for the world where we're, we're all trying to figure out like, what does it mean to be a content mm. creator and, and be able to do that full time? Yeah. How do you do that financially, sustainably? Mm-hmm. Another topic that we'll have to dive into and talk about the the different kinds of funds that you've worked on as well. And the I remember your program where you were donating money to creators. That was really cool. Yeah. So I'm just teasing these topics for, for next time. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, I'm already going way over our time. So let's dive into our rapid fire questions round. I need like um like an audio sound to come up there. Like lasers or, or rocket ships or something for the rapid fire question round. okay first question you ready yes what's your favorite book that you like to recommend to other people um i have so many books that i and, uh, we have to be rapid fire though so i'm gonna be fast rapid fire <laughs> uh, a book that might be relevant to folks that are interested in community um is a book that i stumbled upon while writing my book um it's called the art of community by spencer heath mccallum not to be confused by with the other book that's called The Art of Community, but um, it really- Isn't there two other ones? <laughs> oh God, okay, there's two. It's not the best, most unique title, but um, <laughs> this is by Spencer Heath McCallum. Um, I think you can only really find it now as like a transcript online. Um, I think I bought like literally the last book on Amazon, <laughs> but, um, but wow. it, it dives into this thing of like, um, what does it look like to have communities that are centered around uh, individual proprietor company, whatever. Anyway, so it's it, it was very relevant in helping shape my thesis and was sort of something I stumbled upon. Um, so definitely rec- recommend that others check it out. Love it. Awesome. 
who's an up and coming community builder or for your experience, I also include creator that you might uh, recommend that we follow. I'm going to plug my colleague, Ellie McBride, who's our community lead at Substack, has been doing an incredible job um, and also previously did this at um, Patreon and at Make School. And um, it's just I've been learning so much from her and uh, she's yeah just been incredibly thoughtful in how she's been growing our writer community. So, um, yeah, check her out. Awesome. Does she have a newsletter anywhere we can follow her? She does. Oh, gosh. She, she wrote one for a bit, but now I don't remember what it's called because I think she stopped doing it. Right. But, yeah. We just Google Ellie McBride newsletter. <laughs> uh, Ellie is awesome. Someone I've been following in the space for a long time. So awesome to see you two working together. Yeah. All right. Third question. Uh, who is the best roommate you've ever had and why was it me? <laughs> It's a trick question. <laughs> That's a joke. It's a joke. Um, but like a, a real question, what's your favorite memory from building Feast together? And I'll just, I, I kind of expected us to talk more about Feast in this interview, but we didn't end up doing that. So for context, Nadia and I started a an online slash in-person delivered to your home cooking school for millennials and young professionals who didn't know how to cook and wanted to to learn efficiently and quickly. And we worked on that for, what was that, like almost two years? Yeah. Yeah. I wish I had a really good memory to come up with in here, um, which isn't to say we didn't have them. I just... I'm offended. <laughs> well, when it, I, was, it was a pretty brutal time, actually. It's yeah. mostly... I've, I've, I've blocked out most of it. <laughs> I mostly think I'm just like grinding together, but... um. But I mean, I have a generally happy haze of memory around just sort of like jamming on a bunch of different questions together and um, and often like, I don't know, lying in the park together and talking about it or sitting around in our apartment and talking about it and just sort of those unstructured conversations um, were just really warm and fuzzy for me. I'm curious yeah. if you have any. Uh... I mean, it was really cool just like getting to build a company with you know, a really close friend and roommate. We were like living together and building a company together. And then we moved down to Mountain View for a summer for 500 startups and bet six and just grinded for three months straight. I don't think I've ever worked harder consecutive hours than at that time. I think my favorite, one of my favorite memories. So we got this apartment and I think I slept on an air mattress there every night. <laughs> and I think we might've both slept on air mattresses. Well, it was only like, five to 10 minutes away from the 500 office and I brought my skateboard down out skateboard and you decided that you wanted to learn how to ride a scooter <laughs> and we would ride your scooter and my longboard into the office every day and you were learning and like by the end of the summer you were flying on that thing but at first <laughs> it took us a little bit longer to get to the office but yeah it's just a nice memory. Scooter. This, to be clear, this wasn't like a cool, like motorized scooter, or <laughs> like the kind you kick that you buy. <laughs> it was like a razor scooter. Yeah, I, think. I was. Man, I was so I was so scared of that when he first started. Uh, started scooting around, but um, I got better. <laughs> you you were great by the end. So that was our our scrappy entrepreneur era of our lives. Mm-hmm. Next question, just a couple more. Uh, what's the weirdest community you've ever been a part of? Oh boy, I feel like I shouldn't answer that. Um, I ask this question to everyone, I just want to clarify, but when I realized that I was going to interview you, I'm like, yes. <laughs> I'm going to go with a, a very general answer. Um, I, I definitely like was a part of a lot of weird online forums when I was like adolescent. And so just a lot of like message boards, which like I feel like really indoctrinated me into like online community culture where just a lot of a lot of mean people and then also trolls and like whatever. But you kind of claw your way to the top and become a regular of a board. But yeah, I remember like I mean, it was a bunch of different boards that I was a part of. One of them was like being a, a vegetarian board, which like I mean, people have strong opinions on. I, I was a vegetarian at the time. Um, and yeah, just remembering some of the like random flame wars people get into over what now feels just sort of like silly i want to i want to like go back and read og conversations and like old vegetarian forums from like 15 years ago (laughs) (laughs) that would be hilarious okay last question easiest one if you're on your deathbed and you had to condense all of your life lessons into one tweet sized piece of advice for the rest of the world what would that advice be i hope you know my answer to this which is never condense yourself 
because yeah re- resist resist the condensation condensation is that weird it sounds weird it works uh, <laughs> yeah that's what condensation is resist precipitation and <laughs> stay dry um <laughs> I, like, I like the idea of uh, stay dry folks all right <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, like, I mean, part of even why I feel like I was drawn to Substack in the end was um, I, I, I enjoy using Twitter. I got a lot out of Twitter. I still do so many of my close friends, my boyfriend, like I discovered through Twitter. So um, I owe a lot to Twitter, but I do enjoy having the long form space. And I think like trying not to make your life super compressible and easily understandable to everyone else um, and just sort of rolling with whatever, whatever you feel like doing, even if it doesn't always make sense to other people is basically why i've been so happy getting to work on all the things i've gotten to work on so far love it that's great advice probably advice i need to take myself <laughs> awesome all right well this is great um i really enjoyed this conversation as always it feels it feels a little bit like us just like sitting on the couch back in the day and just talking about random topics yeah um sure. so it's fun to be able to <laughs> record one of these sorry for all the stupid jokes oh. <laughs> sorry to all our yeah, listeners <laughs> Uh, you guys love this stuff. Well, yeah, thank you for joining me. And, you know, I, I've told you this before. Um, and I've said in this podcast how much I respect, you know, your writing and the work you've done and the path that you've paved for yourself, which is extremely distinct from anyone else I know who's worked in tech and, and worked in community. So just really grateful for all the work that you've done, for your friendship and proud of you and everything that you've accomplished thanks right back at you thanks for having me of course all right everyone we'll see you next time the masters of community is brought to you by cmx the world's largest network of community professionals and bevy the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands this episode was edited and produced by finesse media music was provided by seiji cataldo and design was provided by virginia demarco If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a review in iTunes. It's a huge help for helping us get this podcast in front of more people. We really, really appreciate it. And share it with your networks. The more people that learn about the power of community, the better. We have a new episode every week. So until then, thank you so much for listening and see you next time.